it's part of who I am. I want to give back. And because I've been given these skills and I've got to use them to the best advantage. But I'm enjoying what I'm doing. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora te Down to Earth Conversations whānau. Welcome back to the podcast for 2023. Or if you're new here, no mai, haere mai, you are very welcome. I've been pretty quiet on the socials over summer, but a fair bit has been going on in the background and I'm excited to bring you more conversations this year of ordinary people who are making a difference in life. And speaking of making a difference, thank you so much to everyone who has contributed to the fundraisers that I've had running over the summer. Uh, first for Charlotte Cummings, who took over the podcast back on episode 42. Charlotte did an amazing job last year of leading the review for a Rise Church, but she ended up hugely out of pocket due to the associated legal fees. But so many of us rallied around and we were able to get the over $22,000 of shortfall paid off for her in under 24 hours. Uh, which is just brilliant. So thank you if you contributed to that or shared that or supported that in any way. Uh, The second fundraiser is for episode 15 and 16 guest Manny Cox. Uh, And he and his wife desperately need a vehicle that can take him and his power chair around. They had a small grant four years ago to get a van and it was enough to get an older model van that suited. But last year it broke down several times, costing them over four grand. And now it's broken down and is going to, cost more than the worth of the vehicle to repair with no guarantee that it's going to be totally fixed after that. Uh, To get something that actually allows Manny to get around like anyone else uh, with his wheelchair, they're looking at close to $60,000. So they're looking for funding where they can, but I've been running a Give a Little page for them and so far we're up to nearly $27,000, which is so good. Uh, Yet we still have a long way to go to get them into that vehicle that they need. So I'll put a page link in the show notes. Uh, Please share the page around. And if you would like to contribute to help Manny and Sarah, then thank you so much in advance for your support. And thank you to those who have already contributed. It means so much to me and especially to Manny and Sarah. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Corin Haynes, the current Christchurch City Missioner, which is the CEO of the City Mission. Corin is a successful business leader, a wife and mother, a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit, a generous and caring person, and it was a privilege to speak to her. We talk about her journey into business and then leading in business, particularly through adversities such as the Christchurch earthquakes and then an office fire that came soon after that. We talk about how her journey has taken her to the Ministry of Defence and to helping with the regeneration of Christchurch. And then we discuss her current role as city missioner, what that entails and what she's learned along the way. This is episode 65 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Corin Haynes. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to be here with Corin Haynes. Kia ora, Corin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, for those who don't know you, Why don't we start just with um, telling us a little bit about who you are. Well, as Andy said, my name is Corin, and I'm currently working for the Christchurch City Mission. 
this is not a job that I would ever have put my hand up for. Mm. I would never have thought that I could do this role. But I retired after 43 years with Trimble in January of this year. And in March of this year, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, would you like to fill in for a period of six to eight weeks? And I thought, that's great. That gives me something to do. That gets me out of the house. Um, it's winter. Um, this will be a good way of filling in the next six to eight weeks. And then I can worry about spring cleaning and tidying and all the Is things I was going January to do. of last year? Oh, sorry. Yeah, Jan January, yeah cool. January 22. I'm yep. a year out. <laughs> um, and so I said yes. And... Uh, so after um, about four weeks, they said the pe person that they were actually going to give the role to was not probably as suitable as they'd thought. So would I like right. to continue on for a bit longer? And I thought, yep, this, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. And actually I had been thinking, oh, I'm only here for six to eight weeks. There's so many things I could do. Yeah. So I said, okay, um, I'll commit until um, the end of the year. That was the end yeah. of 2023. And, um, yes, that's where we're working towards, but yeah, right. maybe I may stay a bit longer yet. It'll be just up to the, yeah. them and me how they think things are going. See I've got lots goes. more things I want to do there. I can see potential, yeah, cool. and so I'd quite like to continue. Yeah, nice. And there is only so much you can do in a six- to eight-week stint, <laughs> isn't there? Like it's, yes. it's a very caretaker-y yes. kind of... Well, it, well, that's what it was, and yeah. at, at that stage it was 50% hours. Yeah. Um, and I was just there really to mentor, to just yeah. bounce ideas off, just to help people make decisions. Yeah. But then um, when it turned into a more permanent role, uh, we upped it to 75% hours. Yeah, okay, cool. And it's really a full-time job. Yeah. And I guess I'm probably working full-time. But I wanted some flexibility in my yeah. life because I've got other roles that I'm doing. Of I'm chair of a Takaro, yeah. and that's quite a commitment. Yeah. So I just didn't want to be pressured to have to do a lot of stuff after hours. Yeah. So I can be flexible. I can work every day a certain number of hours, or I can work four days of greater hours. Um, I'm allowed to plan my week, which yeah, is cool. really quite suitable for this sort of stage I'm at. Yeah, that's great. Um, and... Yeah, definitely want to talk about more of that as we get through the interview. But um, to start with, let's head back in time um, to your growing up. Where, whereabouts were you? And um, yeah, what was life like growing up? Well, you could probably say I haven't moved far. Yeah. <laughs> because as a child, we lived in Foreignery Road, which is just up there opposite Clyde yeah. Road. I went to Foreigner Primary School and I went to Mackenzie Kindergarten and I went to Kirkwood Intermediate and Christchurch Girls High. And I've sort of lived in a pin around that area yeah. for the whole of my life. Um, and I've got no no complaints about that. Yeah. It's a nice place to live. And I've got friends and I had socialisation activities at that, in that area. So I was born into a family of three girls. Um, my father had come back from the war and... Um, my mother had trained to be a school teacher, but she didn't find that all that exciting. She found the boys a little bit difficult, having come from an all-girls family. Yeah, so right. she then became the uh, principal secretary at Foranui Primary School. And then I was born, I was the oldest, got two sisters that came in over a space of four years. Um, my mother always had a regret that she didn't go to university because her father didn't think that girls needed to be educated. And then when she finished high school, the men were coming back from the war 
And actually, she stayed at school for another year so that she could get into Teachers College. Right. And then she did that. So she was a stay-at-home mother. She yeah. felt that that was what she needed to do. Dad was the um, breadwinner. Um, we had, we didn't have a huge amount of money, but we had a really good upbringing and yeah. we were given um, lots of opportunities. And my mother said, right, she wants her girls to go to um, university and so I decided to, after a lot of deliberation as to what I could do, I decided to do a communist degree yeah, right. and did that at Canterbury University. Yeah. And, I mean, you say your your mother kind of was dissuaded from study. Yes. Was it still kind of the attitude around the time that you went in to do it? Oh, no, I don't think so. But a lot of, our, a lot of the girls in our class either went nursing or to teacher's college, yeah. not but, but a number of the ones from my class went to university because I was in one of the higher level classes. Yeah. Others probably weren't so much. Yeah. But I mean, when I started at university, um, the class for commerce, which, it, which is, was then a male-dominated mm. um, study, there were four girls and 250 males wow. in the class. So it was quite a shock to me coming yeah. from an all-girls school and an all-girls family. Yeah, but true. that was fine. Um, I never... I never felt too bad about that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, quite a few of my friends went to university, but, of course, they didn't do commerce, and the university was split over two sites. And so they were mainly at the town site, mm -hmm. whereas I was split between the town site and the island site. So I used to travel between the two. Sure. So I sort of lost contact with those friends a little bit over that time because our paths didn't cross. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like being such a minority? Like, was it something that you thought about at all, or did no. you just get on with it? Well, there were four girls, and we sat in the back row together. Yeah. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. Um, I mean, over the years, I've probably been a minority right through yeah. um, my career. And personally, I just kept thinking, right person, in the right place, at the right time. Yeah. If I'm the right person and if I've got the skills, then... I'll get, I'll be okay. And I've never really, I mean, story of my life, I mean, I never really planned anything too much and have been tapped on the shoulder for every single thing that I've done. Yeah, so right, I've not right. had to make a conscious decision as to what I want to do in life. Somebody said, hey, I think you could do this or would you like to do that? And so I feel that those opportunities have come because I am the right person yeah. and that gender didn't really come into it. Mm. And, I mean, at Trimble, probably 80% of the staff were males. All of the senior leadership team, apart from myself and perhaps the HR person, were mm. males. But I don't think anybody ever thought, oh, this is a female running this company. They just felt that that was my role and I was doing okay and... They respected me for it. Yeah, cool. So I've never felt a trailblazer yeah, right. <laughs> or um, in the wrong place. It, I just felt this is, this is the job, this is what I've yeah. been called to, this is what I'm doing. I'll do the best I can and it seems to have worked out for me. Yeah. That's interesting because in my head I kind of have women who are going into those male-dominated areas being the pioneers and the, no, you know. Not but actually, <laughs> but And, I mean, even the fact that you were in those roles would have been inspirational to some younger women coming through. I would but, hope so. But interesting to hear that that wasn't kind of part of the parcel for you. you know? No, not at all. I mean, 
I'm not that sort of person. Yeah. I just want to do a good job, the best I can yeah. in the role that I'm doing. And I don't think, help, I'm a female. Although sometimes it's been a little bit confronting when yeah. you go into a room and there's all these males and you sort of somewhat have to break into a conversation yeah. where you are a little different. Yeah. But over the years, you get to know those people, they get to respect you and you get brought into those conversations. Mm. So perhaps it was a little bit more difficult than it would have been for a male, but I didn't really feel like I was a trailblazer. I just felt, mm. this is the job, this is what I'm doing. Hopefully I'm good at it and I'll just keep doing it. Looking at your history, you, you clearly were good at it because you kept getting the opportunities. Mm. Uh, and so you went on not only to work in business, but to lead in business. Yes. Um, so what what was that journey? like? How did you get into that leadership kind of space? Um. Well, I had, it's been a sort of quite a long convoluted career because when I left um, university, I went to KPMG, well, what was called Pickles Perkinson Hadley turned into KPMG. And when I was there, I was doing the accounts along with a lot of other sets of accounts for Computer Bureau Limited, which was a real trailblazer in um, the computing industry. It was one of the first um, companies that offered computing services to organisations. So they did it for Fletcher's, for New Zealand Motor Corporation, who made Leyland, British Leyland cars, mm. um, for New Zealand Cooperative Dairy Company, and then in Christchurch, um, quite a few smaller entities. And I was employed to be the finance manager for New Zealand, and that was at age 27, <laughs> which I felt pretty proud about. Yeah. Well, at least I didn't probably think about it too much at that time, but looking back on it, that was a big leap in faith for those people. Yeah. However, I had been doing the accounts at, at KPMG. Yeah. And then I, I did that, then they moved the head office to Auckland. Um, they asked me if I'd like to do sort of consulting work and look after the super fund and things. Children were born. Um, and then they had this little entity called Datacom Software Research. Or they changed their name to Datacom, which is the Datacom that everybody knows now. Um, and they had this little company called Datacom Software Research, which was an innovative arm doing data collection for the surveying industry. And so I was asked if I would like to come back mm -hmm. and do the accounting for that entity cool. within the Datacom group. So I sort of moved into that. And through... Um, after I joined there, three, about three years later, then that was bought by Trimble, uh, which was a US corporation, who were doing GPS and we were doing mainly optical surveying. Mm. And we had been looking around to align ourselves with somebody who was doing GPS. And Datacom said they thought we should align ourselves with a bigger mm. player. So, yes. Cool. They what said, sort of years are we talking about? About 1991. Yeah, right. So in 1991, we had 41 people in Datacom Software Research. And that was the company that they bought. And there was a managing director at that time, but down the track he um, got offered a job for the parent company in Colorado. And I'd been really looking after a lot of that general management stuff underneath him. And so it was just a general move to yeah. <laughs> take over that role. And I kept that role until I finished. But I also kept some more day-to-day -day accounting activities because mm. I looked after finance for Asia-Pacific as well as yeah, the managing right. director role. Yes, yeah, so a whole bunch of different Trimble's offices around the world. Yeah, Australia, yeah. Singapore, Thailand, um, Chile, New Zealand. Well, yeah, so lots of opportunities there to do different things Yeah, travel. I also set up the accounting for their Shanghai office as well but then that got too hard to manage offshore yep. so they took that over thankfully yeah yeah we were talking before we started recording about how 
even doing this interview is not really your favourite thing because you like to be a leader who's kind of more in the background. Yep. What would you say, because often people think of leaders as the out there, the face of the thing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. What would you say were your attributes that allowed you to be a successful leader? Um, I... Th- yeah, well, that's quite... You could ask somebody else that <laughs> yeah, question. Totally. Yeah, I just <laughs> I mean, thought I'd ask. I think I'm quite... Ask you um, to talk about yourself. I'm quite calm. Um, I'm quite collaborative. Yeah. I think I'm transparent. I, I listen. I take on board what people say, and then I balance all that up and try to say to myself, how do we make this work? How do we give people the authority to do what they want to do without telling them what to do? So hopefully talking it through with them. I mean, every now and then you have to step in and say, well, this is what I think. But I'm, I'm perhaps more transparent than some people, and I, and I do like to involve people mm. quite a lot. Um, I also don't mind doing the details, so, and that's probably not such a good manager in a way, um, but I still could keep my hand and I could still do the work that they were doing, so that if they were away, I could fill in. Yep. If they had questions, I knew, somewhat knew the answers, or between us we could work out the answers, so I wasn't a manager who was just managing and didn't want to be involved yeah. in the lower level stuff. I Which could, would make you not distant from them, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we could, I could sit down and show them how to do sort of journal entries, how to do some transactions. We could bounce ideas, what's the best way to do this. I tried to keep up to date with the accounting standards and dealing with the auditors and things like that so that they could rely on me to support them in their roles. Mm-hmm. You said that when Trimble took over, there was about 40 staff. But yes. it grew from there? Yes, well, in the end, we had probably 450 in New Zealand by the time I finished. Right. And and you were overseeing all of um, that? Yes, although you, it's a little bit of a matrixed organisation. Yep. So although it said managing director, not many people actually reported up to me right. because they would report to people offshore somewhere in the world. Sure. Um, you know, if they were doing development on this project, they might have gone into Germany and these ones might have gone into Sweden, these ones into America. Um, but I had to make sure that we followed New Zealand law, that they had, yep. the leases were all done, that, you know, the culture was right, um, making sure that we were a cohesive organisation within that matrixed organisation. Um, so we made three acquisitions while I was um, in charge. We, we bought a forestry company. We bought a weighing solution company and a very digital um, one in the building space. Right. And so that gave us a breadth of opportunity that we didn't have before. Yeah. But the whole of Trimble is really R&D, research and development for the parent company. All the sales were done through dealers and distributors managed by the US head, head company. Yeah, okay. And so we were just developing products for the parent company. Mm. So, yes, so we grew up to 450. We had about 300 and something in Christchurch and probably had about 60 in Auckland and then we had Whangarei, Gisborne, Tokarua, Rotorua and Wellington wow. and we had pockets of people in those ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess because the largest group was in Christchurch. Yeah. Then it was quite it was, a big deal when the earthquakes came. Uh, quite a big deal. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean lots yeah. of people who are in your sort of roles elsewhere in the country or the world wouldn't have had to deal with anything like that. So what, no. what was that like for you? Well, 
it was at this, the the September one was very early in the morning. So on the Saturday morning, I thought, well, I better go and see what's happened to the office. And I went down there, and I there was quite a lot of damage upstairs. And I thought, hmm. I'm not sure about this, so I quickly ran away again because they were still having aftershocks and I, I wasn't so sure what I was yeah. going to do. Um, but then that calmed down and we managed to keep working in that office through to the February earthquake. The major damage was done in the February earthquake. Yeah, right. I was going into a board meeting in town, so I wasn't actually in the office that day. It happened at about 2.30 in the afternoon and I was um, at home. Uh, but when I went there, I mean, the ceiling grid was all down, the... Um, air conditioning units were hanging down, the lighting was hanging down. I don't know how people didn't get damaged, but they were under their desks. We'd had plenty of practice. Mm. Um, they came out of the building, and, um, yeah, it was it was a mess. And we didn't own the building, but we had that particular building, which was joined to another building on site by a covered walkway at the top level. And so we put people in there... Um, we really squashed ourselves up. We used the ground floor, but not the top floor. Yeah. And we had a, a sort of a single-storey annex out to one side, so we put all the stuff we didn't need down there, and we just walked downstairs. Well, then in May, the crisis was way worse because that building burnt down in a fire. Oh, wow. So the whole building... In that same year? Yes. Oh, my the Lord. The 18th of May, I think, of um, that year. Wow. 2011. So the earthquake was February yeah. and the fire was May. And the landlord had done all this work to get it ready for us to move back into. And we were two weeks away from moving back and he put down new carpet, new ceiling gridding, painted it, tidied oh, it all up, no. made it really nice. And then two weeks before we moved in, the whole thing burnt down. That was probably more of a problem for me than the earthquakes, because yeah. in the earthquakes we could use the ground floor, we had the second building. We had that building which had 100 people in it. So for the first, that was at 12.30am, stood on the side of the road till 5 o'clock at night while the fireman was still working on the fire. And we were just thinking. And I came in the next morning and I stood in that same spot and thought, well, I can hardly run a business from standing on the footpath I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to think, how are we going to make this work? I had a really good IT manager. He was already getting um, data downloaded because the Asian sites were all hanging off our computer system as well. So they had oh, no phones. Wow. They had no email. So we got them up and running within 24 hours. Yeah. We got our staff up and running within um, about two to three days. But, of course, we lost a lot of computing resource, yeah. uh, computers and all that sort of stuff. And then we got the whole of the data, that's how much we had, downloaded 24-7 over the space of two weeks. And there were really... That's a lot to, of data. It was. <laughs> ready to run off a co-location centre. Yeah. But we were really lucky because that um, server room had a four-hour fire rating. So it was... The racks were melting, but there was no fire inside and no water and then we weren't allowed in the building, but we could tell the firemen how to get the drives out of the racks. We had a good backup system, but of course it was only backed up till a particular time. Yeah. And so they actually pulled the drives out of the server room for us, and we took them down to the co-location centre. Wow. And luckily they were compatible with their machinery and they could download the stuff. 
So that was, I mean, that was a huge thing because the earthquakes had happened. Everybody had moved out into the suburbs. There were no, there was no accommodation for people in the suburbs. Yeah. And I've got a hundred people with nowhere to work. So we worked at the Horncastle Arena in the corporate boxes. And we had a few wow. people working every one of those corporate bottles. Every time they had an event, we had to pack everything up for the day, the night, and then we had to bring it all out the next morning. I said, this is clearly not going to be very helpful. So we built some portacoms on the car park. We squashed more people in the other piece of the building. And then we took a, a lease out at Sheffield Crescent, which was not ideal yeah. because it was miles away. Yeah. But we luckily had that until we built a new building. And then we had the landlord said he would build us a new building, and he'd build it one and a half times the size, so we didn't need the second building. And we could all move into the new building, and he took that lease back. Wow. Um, so, but we had to design the building, We had, to, and I had to project manage that whole thing over the You're space. Right. So, so that's awesome, but also a whole lot more work. Yes, on top of everything else <laughs> that we had to do. When we don't have all the resources that we want, and we lost a lot of paperwork in oh, the fire. I bet and there was a whole that. lot of insurance company stuff in there too. Yeah, there? well, there was four years of insurance claims, which just oh, about drove geez. me nuts, because you know they wanted to compare what did you have, what did you lose, with what did you buy, and what one ties up with what one. And yeah. it, was, it was quite... I'd never go through it again. I said, if we ever have another fire, I'm off. <laughs> this yeah, is too well. hard. But I learned a lot in that time. Yeah. Communication is the key. Mm. So pe some of my staff would come and work at my place during the day. I said, left my machine at home, and they bought their own machines. They sat around the dining room table. And then I'd come home at night and use my equipment at night. And then before I went to bed each night, I would write to them and give them a wee bit of an update of what we'd done during the day or mm. where we were going or what the issues were. Um, trying to motivate them, trying to make them work, think that I'm busy doing mm. something for them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that was a challenging time. <laughs> yeah, I can, um, I can only we imagine. We did get um, a part-time person to help us with the claim, but the rest of it I just seemed to somehow squash into my day. Right. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, it was, you know, on one level it was challenging, on one level it was fun, we were getting a new building, um, I learned a lot, I learned a heap. Mm. Um Things I'd never have learnt any other way. Yeah. So, and I just keep thinking this is a learning experience, but it was quite, yeah, stressful. That's yeah. one of the things that podcast listeners will have heard me bang on about is find the good, and that's been one of my mottos: is mm. even when life really sucks, you can still find the good somewhere. Mm. At some stage, you've become involved in like a government um, mm -hmm. group looking at the future of the Ministry of Defence and yep. as you mentioned before you've uh, you chair the board of Otakaro, yep. um which is the government company that oversees much of the rebuild in Christchurch mm -hmm. at what point did you start thinking you know managing this large company is just not busy enough I need to add more stuff to my oh, life no, I never thought that <laughs> no 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 I never thought that in fact how did um, those come about um I think when I got the Champion Canterbury Award from the Chamber of Commerce for, for business in Christchurch, and I, I became a, I came a little bit um, more visible. Mm. Um, I actually think it was Jerry Brownlee um, who asked if I would um, join the Ministry of Defence white paper. He wanted somebody from outside Wellington, someone outside government, somebody who didn't know much about defence, and somebody who'd been running a, a business corporation, um, to have a different viewpoint on mm. than the other people on that panel. And I said, oh, I don't think that's me. I mean, I'm not really interested in defence <laughs> because I, cause I yeah. wasn't at that stage. Yeah. Um, but I do know somebody who'd be really suitable. 
no, no, we don't want anybody else. We want you. So I'm wow. thinking, oh, okay. Well, this seems to be might be a bit of a challenge. So then I talked to the, talked to the company, and they said, yeah, if, you know, if you want to do that, we'll allow you. It was something like about one day off a fortnight. I'm travelling to Wellington, but I still sort of had to do my job, yep. which was fine. I was willing to do that. Mm. So I didn't go seeking anything extra to do. It fell in my lap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was a one-year project, yep. and it, w- it was a good year. It was, it was a tough assignment when you know nothing about defence, yeah. but the others did. I mean, Wayne Mapp, who'd been an ex-Minister of Defence, was there, and David Ledson, who was Chief of Navy, was on it as well. Mm. So they had plenty of knowledge about it. Mm. So, you know, we could bounce ideas off. And, um, and yeah. did, did you feel in the end with it that you did have things to offer? Um, I felt I probably could have offered more when we got onto more the human resource side or the facilities side, but we spent quite a lot of time at the beginning talking about capability and about planes and frigates and all that sort of stuff, yep. which I did find a little bit difficult um, at that time, but I could add some value mm. through that process, but I probably would have been more valuable if we'd been talking about some of those other things. Yeah. But it, but I think it, it was worthwhile for them to have somebody different on there, mm. gave a different perspective. Mm. And it was it was a fine art thing, and um, so it was really probably a year, just yep. over a year. And and so did the Otakaro thing came, come after pretty that? Pretty much after that. Um, I mean, they just rang me up and said, um, would you like to go on this board? And I said, no, I look, I'm really too busy. Um, I just don't have time to do something like that. And they said, when do you think, when would you be? So I didn't have a finance person or an HR person or I was just yep. training somebody or I'd, you know, they'd left or something. And they said, when do you think that you would be? And I said, oh, well, and this was about April. I said, well, maybe about July. Maybe I might be a little bit freer than I am now because they will be installed in what mm. they're doing. So I thought they will never come back to me. <laughs> but in July, they didn't come back and ask the question that time. They came back with the paperwork ready to be signed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I thought, we don't get offered these opportunities every day of the week. So again, I asked the parent company, would that be okay and would that be a conflict of interest? And no, they said that would be fine. Mm. So I said yes. So I was just a member of the board at that yep. stage. Um, so it was about six months into the life of mm. um, that entity and probably was a good time for me to come in because earlier on, setting it up, they were quite busy and were doing mm. lots more than it turned out to be later on as it got a bit more stable. So um, I came in probably at the right time for me anyway yes. from a work perspective. But I did miss out on all that setting up. So I felt at the beginning, I kept saying, this might sound a silly question, but... And then they'd fill me in on the details because I didn't have that history. But that was right. I mean, everybody coming th- knew. That, that feels that same like problem. my experience of coming on a school board. Right. Of trying to figure out what the heck all the acronyms are. <laughs> yeah. I spent, spent <laughs> half of the half of the meetings early on figuring out what the heck we're talking about. At um, the mission, we have a one-page glossary of right. acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> so you I, th- I think the education one's like three or four pages. Oh, is it? Yeah. There's just that everywhere. Oh, Trimble but. had that problem too. <laughs> I it's guess organisations do totally. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so Otakaro, what is the, I guess, the kind of main gist of your involvement as the, the chair of the board there? Like what, how much sort of time does that take? And, well, and what, in what ways are you involved? It, it varies from time to time. But um, as chair of the board, I, I meet with the CEO once a week. 
So I have a meeting with him every week and he will tell me what he's been working on. He'll bounce ideas off me. Um, he'll talk about things like maybe salaries or um, we're having this discussion with one of the construction companies. This is what we're thinking. What do you think about that? Mm. Or issues within the staff um, or expansion or reorganisation, all sorts of different yeah, things. Cool. Just bouncing ideas off me just to sort of clarify what mm. my thoughts were. So I do that every week. Um, three weeks a month, it's Monday. And then the week before the board meeting, I go on a Thursday because the board papers are out. And so we go through the agenda for the board meeting, look at what the topics are. Um, I ask him for comments. I've, I try to skim through the papers by that stage. And then we talk about any issues that might come up, anything he wants my um, support or backing on. We'll discuss it through. Mm. Um, and then we will have a board meeting um, at least once a month where it's basically two-thirds of a day, I guess. Yeah. And so I go to that, and then we have audit and risk. We have that four times a year. And I'm not on the audit and risk committee, but I do go to the meetings because yep. I feel like I need to know what those risks are, even yep. though I'm not on the committee. Somebody else chairs those. Um, we have a strategic planning day. Um, Treasury want to, want to discuss things. Um, we've got a meeting with Treasury next week. Uh, we have meetings with the shareholding ministers. So there's... There's bits and pieces mm. popping up all the time, but the major commitments is the board meeting, the audit and risk meeting, and meeting the CEO on a regular basis. And then they have Thursday stand-up, so every now and then I'll go to a Thursday stand-up if there's something that I need to share with them. Yeah. Um, or they might have a little sort of competition, and I judge the competition, nice. um, just to get to know the staff on yeah. a casual basis. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Has it been quite rewarding being part of something that's all oh. about regeneration. and Yeah. You feel like you're leaving a legacy for Christchurch. Awesome. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it would be good to do. I mean, I've lived here since I was born. Mm. Um, we haven't got any grandchildren. We probably won't have any grandchildren. But um, you're leaving a legacy for people's grandchildren um, and making the city a nice place to be, mm. a, a place of choice for people to live. Mm. And we've done we've done some things that... You don't really see. They're probably a bit mundane, like repairing all the streets. Ninety percent of that's under the under the street, and you don't see much for your efforts. But we've reworked all of those main streets. We yep. did the the boulevard um, from the um, boat sheds right through to Fitzgerald Ave, and reworked all that. Mm. Um, we've done the south frame, made that into laneways and greenery spaces, and we're working on the east frame, which is all of the housing through with Fletcher's and some other providers now on building apartments and high-rise buildings for people to live in the city. We reworked Victoria Square, we did the earthquake memorial, then we did oh. um, Tapai, the convention mm. centre, which was a pretty big project. That's amazing. Yeah, have I, haven't, been in no, there? I haven't been in yet, but I've heard amazing things it's, about it. But even just standing outside it, it's just such a landmark. Oh, it is. It's gonna, yeah. it's, the design yeah. is amazing, and you go inside and there's not single square wall, it's all curved, it's all following the contour of the building, it's all about the braided rivers, the whole design flows through the whole building. That, that's something I've loved about the regeneration is that there's been so much thought put into telling the stories of Christchurch and mm. um, matching the landscape and you know all of that kind of stuff that's going to, you know, in 50 years or so, 
we're going to look back and go, oh, I'm so glad that they put that time and effort into sure. that. Sure. Yeah, well, there's quite a bit of artwork around the um, the convention centre, and we use, we did take a lot of advice from Matapopere and the Maori influence, and, I mean, they they gifted us the name. I mean, we've, we've tried to work in with that, and the, what, the light wall hanging was all designed with, mm. from that perspective as well. So, so that was really great, and then we're working on... Um, uh, Paracuri, the metro sports facility, yeah. which is a little bit slower than we would like, but that's going to be a great facility as yeah. well. So we've done some pretty challenging and pretty exciting things, mm. and that is probably the last regeneration in Christchurch activity. But now that we're being repurposed, we will get a new name, um, and we're going to do infrastructure delivery for the government for the whole of New Zealand. Um, well, when I say the whole of New Zealand, those infrastructure projects could be anywhere in New yeah. Zealand. Oh, right. Um, so cool. for, and for multiple government departments, at the mm. moment we're working for the, we were working for the Minister of Regeneration, but we w might work for Justice and we might work for Mimbi and we might work for many other mm. ministry departments. Uh, there might need to be a bit of regeneration happening after all the... Yeah, the exactly, in, in Auckland in the, and in oh, Hawke's Bay. Yeah. Yeah. So we did horizontal and we do vertical... And we've got now an office in Auckland and, and we're starting an office in Wellington. So we will now be a national company as well. Wow. So, yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, we were given that opportunity because they felt we'd done a reasonable job on mm. the Christchurch rework. And so we've proven that we can get a project, we can see it to completion and deliver. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And then, as we talked about right at the start, you you retired, um, <laughs> yes, and then became one of the busiest retired people I've ever met. Um, um, you are the this uh, Christchurch City Missioner. Mm. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that involves and okay. and what is the city mission for those who don't know? Yes, I think um, a lot of people would say city mission, emergency accommodation, and food parcels, because it's been around for ninety years. And that's what it started doing, and that's what it's still doing. But we actually do a lot more than that. And when I talk to groups, they come away and say, wow, we didn't know you did that much stuff. So we do do emergency accommodation for men and women. So if people turn up at 5 o'clock at night and they need a bed, we don't turn them away if we've got a bed. And so if they've got a bed, they can stay a night. They can stay two nights. They might stay three or four nights. Um, but if they stay more than a couple of nights, we will work with them, we'll say, do you need a social worker, do you, do you need a counselling, do you need, have you, got, have you got drug and alcohol problems, have you got, you know, we try to drill down, is it a short-term need, is it a long-term need, what's caused it, and so we try to sort of support them in that situation. So we've got those two emergency accommodations, we've just opened a transitional housing facility, which is a 15-bed unit, three floors of five oh. bedrooms, and they have to, it's like a flatting situation, they have to cool. do their own cooking, their own um, uh, housework. They have to look after their own bedroom. Um, but they have to socialise together. They're not to sort of sit in their rooms. They have mm. to sit together. They have to work out how to live together. They have to work out how to roster cooking. And they have one night a week where they have to cook. So learning a whole lot of life skills. Yeah, yeah. so that when they go back into the community, they'll yep. be better able to cope. And so when they come into that, it's a th sort of a three-month. We've just started it. It'll be a three-month 
there and they get what's called a navigator and that person will be with them for the three months then we'll go back out into the community with them for a few months to just make sure they're still doing okay that where we've put them works well for them so that we give them every opportunity to survive out there but while they're with us in the mornings they have to do learning and development activities it's part of the contract that they sign up to so they might learn anger management, they might numeracy, literacy, we help some of them get a driver's licence, um, we teach them cooking, we might teach them how to how to shop, healthy eating, mm. all sorts of different things that they've probably not learnt about yeah. in their childhood and in their growing up years. Um, so that's that part of housing. We've got an alcohol and drug centre, so we've got, we're the only private detox unit in the South Island. And so we take people in there for one to two weeks, not allowed any drugs, they're basically not really allowed out, and we intensively work with them. We've got nurses who can medicate them if they get into um, issues when they come off drugs, um, and do activities with them, Mm. and that's called Zorp House, and we have people who are dedicated to that work. But then we also have people working in that alcohol and drug space, like we've got a group called Fight Wahini Waiora, and um, for females who want to come in every day for as long as they like, they do craft, they do sort of um, counselling, one-on-one group therapy sessions, we give them instruction, and as I say, that's during school time, so they're free to go home to their families, and they can cut, we never sign them off, although, you know, if they don't come for two or three weeks or four weeks or five weeks, we might somewhat think that they've moved on. But if they come back, they can come back. Yeah. And so we, we support them. Yeah. Um, we, we do have the food bank, and that is one of our biggest things, and we're just opening a building in the next two to three months which will have a proper food warehouse and a self-serve supermarket as well to give people dignity to choose what they want. Although, realistically, a lot of people will still want to just pick up a food parcel and go. But we will give them help with that. We will have volunteers who will go through the supermarket because they'll get a certain number of points and say, right, you've got 30 more points, or you've bought pasta. Do you want to buy pasta sauce? Um, Do you want vegetables or do you want fruit? Um, Mm. Would you like rice or do you want pasta? And somewhat guide them through and help them get a balanced sort of group of things that they could have. But they will have the chance to buy or, you know, when I say buy, up to a number of points, what they will want in their parcel Mm. rather than what we just give them. So that's a whole new proposition for us that we're going to start. So... Um, and we've got our op shops as well. Mm. So we've got them um, Thrive. Thrive. Yes, yeah. they're called Thrive Op Shops. Um, so there's one in Chewham Street, one in Sydenham, um, and Brindwa and Rangiora. And that that's for people to go where they can get cheap clothing, but also um, to, to earn money for the mission. So there's a double edge there. So it's... You know, if we're really wanting to make money for the mission, then the prices would be too high. Yes. But if we get things that are really good, we put them on Trade Me. So we've got a Trade Me account, and we've got a, a one that we put retro and label clothing on as well. Mm-hmm. So we can get better prices for those than we would get in the op shop. And we've got the cafe now. So I don't know if you've heard about the City Mission Cafe, but it's opposite. Just briefly, yeah. Yeah, so it's a value-for-money cafe. So if you just want the basics... 
Teas, $2. Coffees, $3. And muffins are $3. And scones are $2. But then we have meals as well. So if you have a full breakfast, I think it's $10.50, which is still cheaper than other places. Um, There's takeaway meals. So you can buy a ready-made meal for something around about $10, I think. And that's got meat with vegetables, and it's Mm. just ready to reheat. And it's open to anybody. It's open from 7.30 in the morning till 2.30 in the afternoon. And... Um, you'll find our clients there because we have a pay it forward so they yeah. might get their coffee for nothing um, or they might get their coffee for nothing but they might buy their own muffin or their own scone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll find business people having a meeting there. You'll find tradesmen coming in just for coffee as they're going on their way to work. You'll find our staff there. Yeah. Um, all, and it's such a good, um, vibrant um, village sort of atmosphere which is what That's we're trying really cool. to make it. Yeah. yeah. So that's a new something that started at Labour Weekend last year. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like a very diverse and complex kind of organisation. Oh, it is. And, um, you know, when, I guess if you, if you just take face value and go, you know, being working for the city mission, if it, you know, that stereotype of it being food parcels and, yep. and accommodation, you know, and then you're working in business for years don't necessarily go hand in hand, but actually like look, looking at what you've done through your, you know, your working career, your business career, actually so many of those skills would be not only helpful, but extremely necessary to be able to Absolutely. run a business like that. Because people would say, oh, it's not a business. And I say, well, it is. It just has a different purpose. Yeah. Businesses, commercial businesses are out to make money. Mm-hmm. We're out to break even. If we make a little bit of money, that's great because all, all organisation needs reserves. Yeah. But we're here to break even. But it's a $9.6 million business. So that's what wow. it costs us to run it. And we've got 100 and something employees, some full-time, mm. some part-time, some casual. That's a lot of people to look after. So there's people, there's finances, there's strategic planning. There's all of those things that you have in a standard commercial business in this organisation. It just has a different purpose in life. And so we have to find $26,000 every day of the year to survive. Now, some of that comes from government contracts, some of it comes from grants, but a lot of it comes through our own ways of raising money. Um, So if I suppose if there was anything that kept me awake at light, which it doesn't, (laughs) would be, are we going to have enough money to pay the staff? And we're doing quite well this year, so I don't have to worry about that, but it's always there for the future. Yeah. Um, when I say we're doing quite well, we are on budget. Um, uh, You're not raking it in. No, we're not. No, we're not. And I could tomorrow say a different story. Yeah. So, you know, you're sitting so, on a bit of a knife edge. Yeah. It's that or the safety of our staff and our clients, because some of our clients are unpredictable. They have mental health issues. Um one day they can be very easy to deal with, the next day they can have uh, major problems. Mm-hmm. So keeping the staff safe is quite a big thing for me. Yeah. Um, but we, we do quite well in that line as well. But, you know, there are times when we've had to shut reception and sort something out before we can have people come back in again, um, which you don't get so much in a commercial organisation. But yeah. it just goes with the territory. Yeah. What has been the best thing for you about being in this role? The passion of the staff who work there. From day one, you could see that the people who work there 
want to be there. They're passionate about what they do. That's fantastic. And they love their clients. I mean, you, you listen to um, love your neighbour as yourself. And I've said to people when I've talked in church, that's very easy when you look around this church yeah. and love your neighbour. I mean, there's nothing that you would not love about those people. But you come into the reception at the city mission, it takes a very special person to love those people. Yeah. And our staff do. They love them. They really want to help them. And that passion and that enthusiasm for what they're doing. And also the fact that when we're looking for new people, we find people who want to come and work for us. And that actually somewhat amazes me and it certainly encourages me because for those people it's not all about the salary, it's not all about the yeah. money. It's about they want to be part of an organisation that's out there helping vulnerable people. Yeah. So I think that's one of the exciting things that i found. And that's why I wanted to stay, because I can see that my contribution overarching what those people are doing is so valuable to the people who actually have that hands-on job. Mm. Well, one of the things I've missed out, not that I could tell you everything about what no. we do, but we do have sites out in the community. So we've got Linwood, we've got um, Sydenham, um, Beckenham and... Um, Hornby, where we have groups of people out there with community trusts and things yeah, working cool. out there as well. Because coming to the mission in Hereford Street is confrontational for some people. Yeah. But if they can come to one of the community hubs and the people there say, well, maybe you should see one of the councillors at the mission. If they come with a name and say, I'm coming to see so-and-so, or I've yeah, been asked just breaks to come the here, ice for them. it does, yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to develop that a little bit more oh, that's to really make cool. it less confrontational for people. And I mean, that's about looking at the fact that these are people, isn't it? And, yeah. And going, well, actually, all of us get nervous going to new things and, yep. and all of us get nervous having to ask for help. Yes. It's Why quite it hard easy? to ask for help, actually. So we had a 71-year-old who used to give to the mission quite a lot. And then he, got, he found himself in strife. He said he sat outside for 15 minutes before he plucked up courage to come in, even though he'd been there multiple wow. times before helping. But he had to pluck up courage to mm. come in. So it's quite... And I, I guess that story also goes to the fact that, you know, people might have in their heads what people are like who might need the support of the mission, but... All of a sudden they find themselves like that. Yeah, that, that actually, I guess, you know, what you would have seen would be that those stereotypes... It's not don't all about the picture. No, they don't. I mean, they definitely are the people that you would normally think would be our clients, and mm. we're there absolutely to help them. But then there's people who come who, for one reason or another, can't pay their bills, can't can't pay for food. You know, maybe they've lost their job. Maybe um, the interest rates have gone up. Maybe they've had them. Um, you know, they've had their house taken away from them, or, or whatever mm. it is and they need our help at this point in time. They never would have expected to be in that situation. Some of them have even got an income. It's just that they can't make ends meet. Yeah. And it's really hard for those people. Mm. And you might stereotype it as being a single male or something like that, but it's not. It's families, it's females, it's across the board, the sort of people who are coming to us these days. Well, yeah. well I, I mean, I could talk to you for ages about all this, but we need to wrap up. But, um yeah. One, just an, an observation, I guess the part of the reason I wanted to chat so much about the stuff that came before your work at the mission is because I look at all of that and then look at your work at the mission and go, it's not that you were doing business and now you're you're making a difference. 
actually you've been making a difference the whole way through. Yeah. And that we can use our skills in all sorts of places. And I think you're a really great example of that, that, you know, you've used it in business, you've used it to be on the board of Otakoro, um, making a huge difference in Christchurch and, and now beyond, you know, and yet you've also been able to serve the mission and, and with that um, people focus. And I think for those listening, that's really cool to to think about the variety of ways that we can make a difference. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I have been lucky. I have been given skills. I have been, I mean, I was not hugely academic at school. I got my degree, I wouldn't say. I probably didn't get an A in that all that time. But I've used those skills that I've got for the to the best of my ability to support organisations or people, mentoring people, leading people, supporting people. And, I mean, I've been involved in St Barnabas for years. I was in a, St James before that. I've been on Vestry for I don't know how many years. I like to give back to those organisations. I was on school PDAs. I ran second-hand, using shop, uh, second-hand clothing shops, all of those yeah. things. I just... It's part of who I am. I want yeah. to give back. And yeah. because I've been given these skills and yeah. I've got to use them to the best advantage. Yeah. But I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Which is fantastic. Yeah. So I'll oh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and share your story. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for uh, all the ways that you have given of yourself for the benefit of others. Um, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Thank you. My pleasure. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near I loved hearing about Corinne's journey that has led in so many different directions because she's been open to the possibilities presented to her and to hear the variety of ways that she's used her skills to make a difference in the world. Corin, we so appreciate you sharing with us. Here is a blessing for you. Corin, may you continue to love what you do, and may others be encouraged as you support them to do what they love too. May surprise opportunities continue to tap you on the shoulder and draw you into experiences you may otherwise never have explored. May you continue to be encouraged that who you are makes a difference in the world, that what you do flows from that, and that many are being impacted by you living your best life. May you find moments of joy and celebration alongside the challenges and heartaches, finding the good even in the most challenging spaces. May you find rest in the busyness, refreshing you for what lies ahead, and giving you space to just be with yourself and with others who bring you life. May you continue to find friends and companions with whom you can share the journey, those who have your back no matter what, and who celebrate you just as you celebrate others. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Karen Maxwell about her journey of parenting, how she's reacted when life hasn't turned out how she'd planned, and how she and her whānau have journeyed through ups and downs of life together. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa, 
Kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga Kia me atu tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taro mā mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia E ngari whakorangia mātou I te kino hunga